Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, well actually just 10 minutes ago, I made a stir fry, which is the universal term for I overfilled my pan and made a freaking mess everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's a classic mistake. Uh, Is it a mistake or is it really just uh, part of the process? (laughs) It's, you know, it's a good way to learn how to eyeball things over time i think and what if i start really zealously sure and then i fall off what about that well i mean that's how things naturally go for us anyway so i think that's uh, (laughs) that's true (laughs) (laughs) well i'm cameron lalana and uh, i've got new glasses this week which is fun because i went to the optometrist for the first time in two years and um, my eyesight got so much worse that i i thought the appointment was going kind of long And at the end, she said, yeah, your eyesight got so much worse. I didn't believe it at first. So I kept trying to trick you, but you nailed it every time. So (laughs) (laughs) which is not what you love hearing from your optometrist, but no, it kind of sounds like they're more of a leprechaun than an optometrist. (laughs) (laughs) You solve my riddles, you'll get a piece of gold. (laughs) But instead of gold, it's the ability to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, I should probably go. It's been like three years. Uh, well, I mean, if you could still, I feel like out of my right eye, I could no longer read hmm. signs at a distance. So I figured that was a good sign. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anywho, this is a podcast about eyes where me and my good pal Cameron <laughs> get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This fine evening, we are changing the course of history, or so we may think, <laughs> with book three, part two of War and Peace. And may I add my least favorite part so far? <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about it. This one, this one kind of dragged. But, oh, um, it just dragged all over <laughs> me. I did not like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a second. And uh, if you're following along and you also know how much of a drag this part is, then you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of your reading, uh, especially in this part, because you may really have skimmed this because it is a drag. Uh, so you should head on over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy, which is where we post a reading guide for every episode. And that includes quick commentary on major quotes and themes. Plus once per month during this series, we're hosting a Patreon only uh, reading series to discuss everything we didn't get to in our episodes. You should join. We just had one earlier today. A lot of fun. Good discussion. You should have been there. It's a real shame you weren't. Yeah. You it's because individually. you weren't subscribed on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And that's really the bigger shame <laughs> that you've brought upon yourself. A shame on your family, yourself, your history, your house. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but not to make you feel too bad. If you are not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help your favorite Russian literature podcast out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Or you can sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. It's a first step towards alleviating that shame. Right. You'll maybe you won't get all the way there, but you'll get you get somewhere. Right. Right. Well, we'll have more options once we start up our cult. Uh, but anywho, right. Matt, I got to ask you, as we're stepping into this reading tonight, what are you drinking? What have you brought to the table? Yeah, I'm bringing a repeat, baby. <laughs> we love a good repeat. Yeah, I'm drinking uh, Intentional IPA. It is by Wellbeing. It is right. a non-alcoholic brew. And it is definitely my favorite non-alcoholic beer. Right. So thank you, Wellbeing, for this. You didn't send it to me, but thank you for making the beer. (laughs) That was nice of you. 
I wish you sent it to me. If anyone who works for well-being is out there, you can send Matt free beer for um, yeah, no benefit. Been- we were already, I guess, promoting it by bringing it on repeatedly. So um, nothing really that you can justify to a boss, but it'd be nice. Maybe in the video format, I'll blur and bleep the name of the beer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if you send Matt free beer, he will get it tattooed on his head. So we cannot. So it's <laughs> it's every episode. That's what right. we're willing to do for our sponsors. Yeah. We don't have any. That's why we're really <laughs> willing to do a lot. We're willing to go the extra mile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you drinking and are you willing to get it tattooed to your head tonight? I, you know what? Why not? If I, after I drink this, I might be. So this is going to be something that's going to work a little bit better for our visual listeners. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm informally calling this part. We've got a couple nicknames. For me, this part is what I'm calling the salt of the earth part because we're going to get into some peasant politics. And that is my justification for bringing a 32-ounce Modelo to... <laughs> that is, I mean, that's what 19th century Russian peasants drank. It, Yeah, ex- that's that's the goal. So mm-hmm. I have 32 ounces of a peasant drink uh, in my tall, <laughs> tall beer glass, which I got when I used to work at a bus station. I don't know why they were giving out beer glasses as a little gift for working at the bus station. Seems like they'd be incompatible, but... Say la vie, here we are. Oh, that way you can drink it while you're on the bus. That's right, when you're driving. Right? Yeah. Or driving, was, yeah. 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 <laughs> I did once, uh, at the lo- we got a lost and found. We had a lost and found, and it was in a college town. So the biggest thing by far that we got were like water bottles, um, hydro flasks, sure. thermo flasks, whatever. And uh, one time I was returning one to someone, and they accidentally picked up the wrong one, which they realized after they opened it up, took a whiff, and was like... Jesus, can you smell this? And I leaned over, <laughs> took a whiff, and realized that that bottle was not a small bottle, like a good-sized one, was almost entirely full of fireball. Wow. All and right. So someone that day was either having a really good or a really bad day. Well, happy <laughs> bus riding to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and speaking of, of riding the bus, just trying to get there, just going on a journey, mm-hmm. let's talk about part book three, part two, uh, and maybe Undrig. Why are Cameron and Matt ragging on this one so much? Can mm-hmm. it really be that boring? And to answer it, no, it's not boring. In fact, it's a very important part. However, that's just something about this particular part. I think it's probably because Tolstoy is, as we've mentioned before, not a super subtle writer. I, although I think I, as he develops themes more, he gets more and more subtle with them, like the transition from you know Anatoly and Helena to Steva. You know, it becomes more subtle over time. However... Not subtle in this part. It is an entire part, not to dissuade you from listening, an entire part of hammering home a lot of the points we were talking about before. It's just too much Tolstoy. I'd say it. Yeah, yeah. Too much Tolstoy, not enough tipsy. <laughs> That's all we have to bring. That's what we're here for. We have to bring that in. Matt, uh, can I ask you, I know my informal name for this part is the Salt of the Earth chapter, but I quite liked your name for this part. Oh, well, it's it's not perhaps the name for the entire part. Sure. Uh but there was a really important role that Princess Maria finally comes to play, and that is the role of the manic pixie husser girl, <laughs> as she is kind of the plot device for <laughs> this part of the book. Yeah, yeah. And that was the only funny thing I really wrote in my margins this time, so I, I knew it wasn't <laughs> going to bode well for me now that right. I've put that out in like the first 10 minutes of the show. <laughs> All right, you, uh, you've, gotten, you've gotten the big... You've gone to the high of this episode. You can go ahead and turn it off now. So No, that actually is the end of the episode. And <laughs> before we let you go, I wanted to extend a sincere thank you to Princess Gloria for giving me that joke. 
Um, exactly. Um, well, I, I know you probably won't have anything, but just in case, before we get into the actual story itself, is there anything that you want to cover? Not to cover, but just like this probably is the most important part of the book, I guess, <laughs> narration wise, because this is the battle. This is the big boy. This is the big old thicky. That's the battle of Baradina, uh, Baradino. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced like many different ways. I listened to an audiobook for part of this. It was it was a bad experience for me. I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I rarely find audiobooks that I like, and this one sure. did not did not help that sentiment. The reader pronounced that multiple different ways, and there was kind of like a lot of pausing when it came to names as they were trying to piece together sure. how to say things. It was awesome. <laughs> sounds sounds like a good experience. Yeah, it's really good. So yes, this is important. This is when the French army gets routed. You know, they're they're um I mean not the end of the war, but the end of their momentum of the war. Um and well we'll let's we'll talk about that. Before we get there, we start on we, we're starting new parts. Of course, we're starting new theorization. Part one of this is just the narrator writing to us as readers saying, Look, um, it makes sense to the people this time. And sorry, I've got I've got a I'm just every time we do one of these episodes, I got to have a longer quote. This is going to be that one for this episode, <laughs> uh, which basically because it's basically the thesis for the entire part. And this is the thesis Tolstoy is putting down for us. Uh, this isn't the thesis, but as an introduction, the actors of 1812 have long, long since left the stage. Their personal interests have vanished, leaving no trace and nothing remains of that time, but its historic results. And he goes on to say, but no one at any time foresaw what now seems so evident that this was the only way an army of 800,000 men the best in the world and led by the best general could be destroyed in conflict with a raw army of half its numerical strength and led by inexperienced commanders as the Russian army was. Not only did no one see this, but on the Russian side, every effort was made to hinder the only thing that could save Russia. While on the French side, despite Napoleon's experience and so-called military genius, every effort was directed to pushing on to Moscow at the end of the summer. That is doing the very thing that was bound to lead to his destruction. So the context for that Dunk. is talk. Absolute dunk. Eat that, on. Napoleon. <laughs> the context for this is that, of course, Napoleon trying to march to Moscow is what leads to more or less the destruction of his army, the necessity of retreat, which destroys even more of it. And, you know, eventually it kind of leads to his first downfall. Tolstoy says historians are, like to point out, tried to attribute, attribute, ascribe or attribute. It didn't get I didn't get to either of those words there. Ascribe or attribute uh, intentionality to this outcome. Either Napoleon really intending to go to like Mo like having uh, you know that that intention to go to Moscow. He did to some degree, but more importantly, the intention like the idea that this was an intentional outcome. The Russian army wanted to pull Napoleon in. They knew that um, by going to Moscow, he'd be overextending his lines and thereby ensure his own destruction. When really. As the narrator points out, the historical record shows it was completely an accident. The Russian army did not want Napoleon to get that close to Moscow, of course, or get to Moscow, which leads to its burning. And it's really just a series of historical accidents. You know, it's, it, the, the Russian army won, as told, well, Tolstoy asserts, despite itself. It wasn't carrying out a grand plan. It was just bumbling its way through and happened to win. I don't know. Kutuzov is kind of masterful in this part, the way he, like, sleeps yeah. and then retreats. <laughs> <laughs> And nobody really wants to surrender because that would that wouldn't be good. So we'll just keep retreating further and further until something happens, and until you win. As until everyone's so just exhausted and starved and frozen that eventually you can kind of maybe win. <laughs> yeah, which is 
you know, as Tolstoy says, this is the idea of historians. This is really the narrator's anti anti-historian part. Formerly it was the anti-doctor part, now we're at the anti anti-historian part. Basically, the thesis is again, as we've heard, it's not an individual which turns the hands of the world historical clock. Rather, it is the many um hundreds of thousands of people involved in it. And in this case, what's really going to be hammered home into our heads is that the outcomes here were not planned. It was not because of any genius. It was just what happened. And no one really could have predicted that. And no one could have controlled that. And the people who are... And if you study history, <laughs> it must suck to be you. <laughs> he keeps dunking on. Well, we'll come back to more dunks and historians. But so we start out And at, you personally for studying history, you fool. <laughs> Any one of you individually, personally studying history. Yes. Useless profession. Shame. Yeah. Study something useful like literature. <laughs> We all know that saying, those mm -hmm. who don't study history are bound to avoid its mistakes. Right. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> so we go back to Bald Hills, where as war draws closer, things have gotten way worse for Maria. Her father is just... And you thought, there's no way the elder Balkonsky could get worse. No, he does. He gets worse. I, don't, I didn't think he could actually do better than intentionally shoving shoveling snow over the path for you know to prevent people from coming to visit him i like that sure that was king mentality right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but well, away from his heyday of you know the the heights of um right shoveling preventing visitors from coming um andre writes them a letter says hey you guys need to go the french army is advancing um it's not safe for you at bald hills and even though the letter is read out loud to everyone in the room uh, Balkonsky is kind of disconnected from it all and says, uh, uh, what does the letter say? That we're winning? Um, why would I ever leave here? Because we're winning. Everyone's like, no, that's exactly the opposite of what the letter says. And he says, no, I think I know what I heard. Uh, and continues to insist that there's no reason to leave. Which continues until he that evening when he reads it a second time, he realizes like, oh no, actually we are, we probably should evacuate, but instead of evacuating, just sends his uh, servant out um Apatich to go get some supplies while in town Apatich the the and the uh in Smolensk uh Apatich comes under fire the French army invades the town is set fire by soldiers and by the townspeople and they have to retreat and on Apatich's way back kind of evacuating he runs across Andre who says wait why are you guys still here you need to evacuate he 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 gives them you know gives them coordinates where you should go and so on Apatich takes these back and the prince, the elder Balkonsky at this time, understanding the depth of the threat, now agrees to evacuate, but says that he personally will not leave. He's going to be leading militia forces up to fight the French. Should be good. Should be fine. He seems like he's in his, his peak for leading military actions. It's like a really good mental state to do that. Yeah. yeah Give yeah. this man a couple guns and send him off. <laughs> so he's in such a good state, in fact, that he has a seizure and falls ill. Mm. And they have to retreat to um, to Prince Andre's estate at uh, Bokuchorova, something like that. And while they're there, his state continues to get worse and worse. And Maria, at this point, not doing great. As we mentioned, things have gotten way worse for her, especially after um, Andre tried to come to her defense in the last part. And now uh, the elder Balkonsky is yelling at Maria often for turning his son against him. Things going great for him and his mental state. And so she is basically just awaiting his death, just waiting for him to pass up until the moment that he's actually dying. And then he apologized to her and 
she kind of, and this is a longer scene. It's not as sudden as, as describing it, but has this turn of heart um, and begins to think, how could I have wanted my father to die? And even before he, he does die, she's sent out for the doctor. And while she's away, he dies. And so now not only has she had, you know, an about heel on how she feels about her father, made much easier by the fact that he's dead now and can't continue his abusive uh, behavior, but she's also deprived of knowing what his final words to her were going to be because he's cut off uh, because he goes, goes by the doctor so they can take care of him. Definitely the worst luck in the whole book. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. By far. I mean, Prince Andre almost dying twice. That's not great either, but <laughs> it's, it's pretty, pretty bad too. Sure. But hey, Prince Andre almost died twice. You only get to miss your father's dying words once. <laughs> so true, bro. <laughs> so they decide it's time to leave, except for Madame Borean, who says, hey, um, maybe we should just like surrender to the French. That'd be kind of cool, right? And Mario freaks out and decides we got to go right now. Get, like, get away from literally leaves the room <laughs> and says, we got to get away from this place and this traitor, essentially. However, un unfortunately for her and her desires to leave uh, the peasants at uh, Andre's estate, they are, uh, as the book notes, different. They are step peasants. They are entirely, they are not, and this is the, I'm, I'm regurgitating the text here, not my personal view on people, uh, not as servile as other serfs. Again, regurgitating the text. Basically, they're like prone to superstition. You know, it's really just normalcy that keeps them tied to their land. If they sense that things are going to get weird, like when they thought the world was going to end, I think it kind of implies that they're old believers. I, I wouldn't hold, I, or some alternate form of religion, you know, when they believe the world is going to end, they were totally willing to leave en masse, which ended in most of them, or a great deal of them at least, being sent to Siberia, being executed, dying, et cetera, et cetera. And they have decided, or at least the village elder has decided, we can't flee our homes, we got to stay here. So they begin to forcibly, essentially, keep the princess there, because without them to give her their horses or get her carriage ready, she's it's just her and the house servants who can't do any of that either. So they're stuck there. And the, the the peasants tend to surrender to the French because, hey, what can they do to us that's worse than losing our homes and losing our land? So as that's happening, Andre actually returns to the Bald Hills estate and is feels somewhat somber looking at this now evacuated land, everything his father had worked so long, long and hard for, which uh, has now been reduced to just a few peasants, essentially. Although he does feel like kind of a, a little alleviated when he sees uh, some children stealing um stealing a plum because it's like he feels that something else could be important besides the war at least to these children what's important to them is being able to get away with this plum and that alleviates him somewhat at the same time in petersburg we've got the salons which are taking sides some are strongly anti-french approving of all their measures some are like well maybe we should talk to the french um and we have our friend prince prince vasili waltzing around condemning people as he's wont to do or uh, later on telling everyone how great that same person is once they get appointed to a position of power. I miss him. It's been a while. Yeah, since we had any facility content. Yeah. We just we get a little we get a little taste, a little treat. Yeah, pop up gets a little treat. Nothing wrong yeah. with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So at this point, uh, Kutuzov is appointed to field marshal, control of the armies, taking it's taken away from Barclay de Tolly, who is I think German, um, under like the, the excuse that we can't have, you know, Bagration is feuding with, uh, you know, Detali, so they can't lead an effective army like that. And also, he's a foreigner, so we can't really defend our nation. You know, 
<laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, and so Kutuzov is put into, you know, put into a position of power, which just becomes important later on. Um, and then for a little bit, we we um, <laughs> we take a moment to dunk on Napoleon. Sure. Which is that Napoleon is out in the field. His men say, oh, we've captured a Cossack. You should speak to him. And he goes to speak to the Cossack and begins to, using all this information, decides, okay, this is my plan of attack from here. Unbeknownst to him, the man they've captured is not only not a Cossack, he's not even a soldier. He's just like a serf. Uh, in fact, the serf of, I think, um, I forget who, but uh, someone we know. It's Nikolai's serf. Okay, yeah. Nikolai, he's he's just saying things that he thinks people will want to hear because that's what he's used to doing. Whoever, he, like whoever his superiors are, he just says what makes them happy. And so Napoleon is patting himself on the back for being such a masterful interrogator while this hapless serf is just lying <laughs> out of habit to him. <laughs> and then Napoleon sends him off grandly thinking of how majestic he is while the serf is just wandering off being like, that was weird. All right, well, back to finish my errand. Any, <laughs> anywho. <laughs> And uh, also, as a as a good uh, um, uh, here's here's the narrator's anti chess player content for the day. A good chess player, having lost a game, is sincerely convinced that his loss resulted from a mistake he made, and looks for that mistake in the opening, but forgets that at each stage stage of the game there were similar mistakes, and none of his moves were perfect. He only notices the mistake to which he pays attention because his opponent took advantage of it. How much more complex than this is the game of war, which occurs under certain limits of time and where it is not one will that manipulates lifeless objects, but everything results from innumerable conflicts of various wills. That's that's horrible. I mean, first he told me I couldn't study history and now I can't play chess. <laughs> you can't. You I can't, can't go even to watch doctors. the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> like, that's unbelievable. I think Tolstoy would have gone hog. Do you think Tolstoy would have liked Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, I think Tolstoy, like if he was alive today, probably would have been canceled before he was able to put an opinion out on anything. Um, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And, and not in like, um, oh, cancel culture comes for everyone in like a really rightful way. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, you know, people. Sure. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> that's fair. Right. That's fair. Before he could he could comment on the all important issues of his time. Like, what does he think of Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, right, right. This and is on their agreements question. of anti-doctor content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, maybe he wouldn't have been canceled. Maybe he would have been selling like supplements, <laughs> in like as like part of an MLM. I kind of imagine Tolstoy. Have you ever been to like a fair? There's always like one guy's like handing out books that are like about oh, some person you've never yes. heard of who's like a religious leader. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think that he'd be the guy handing those books out. Except they would I be his books. <laughs> Right, it would be his own yeah. books, which would be actually... It might even be about himself, possibly. That would be kind of awesome, though. <laughs> do you want to do that? Well, no, because I don't have any religious writings, but like, if All I right. was Tolstoy, that would be pretty cool. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, not really, I guess. <laughs> well, I, it's getting less cool as I think about it. <laughs> I love this whole arc from talking yourself into it to talking yourself out of it in about 15 mm -hmm. seconds. Yeah, that, well, I, I kind of think of the practicality of actually meeting Tolstoy, and I don't think I would want it. <laughs> That's valid. That's fair. Um, Tolstoy is like the absolutely the number one example of why you should never meet your heroes, in a sense. He's not really my hero either, so I don't have a lot of reason to want to meet him, I guess. Sure. Anyone you would, you like their work, I think he's the peak, peak example of why you maybe shouldn't meet them. How about don't meet anyone? Don't ever go outside. Don't go outside. Listen to Tipsy Tolstoy <laughs> podcast. 
become a you know a neat an eet you could you could be like a you could be like a dog here's like your little bit of mental stimulation <laughs> go back inside <laughs> um this sounds like a really good really good uh, advice to give to people um so yeah while this is happening let's go back to the scene at uh, uh at andre's estate which he he thinks my family is safe now they've obviously left bald hills oh no 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 they are not safe <laughs> <laughs> they are uh currently maria is basically being held captive in a sense by the peasants and nikolai who is because the russian army is now russian army and the french army are both in the vicinity um is just scouting for grain comes across the the estate uh boku uh Boku-Turova, and goes inside and like oh let me meet with the mistress of the house and maria and walks in and he sees her and she explains her situation to him so he says, look, I'll help you. If I have to do it personally, I will get you out of here. And in classic Nikolai sense, when he says he's going to help, what does he mean? He means he's going to go beat up a peasant, <laughs> which seems yeah. to be his main, <laughs> his main way of solving problems. Uh, so he goes to talk to these, these step serfs. And what we find is serfs. <laughs> S-T-E-P-P-E, but uh, yeah. <laughs> What are you doing, Step Surf? Um, <laughs> so what we find, and this is to me the most interesting part of this book, there's like an internecine conflict between the serfs. The, el- the existing village elder has been outed by a new elder because the current village elder has kind of gotten cold feet about things. And uh, power struggle going on. Uh, Nikolai solves it by uh, putting the two erstwhile elders in, uh, in, by binding them and making them fall along the source and beating them until they repent. Essential. Well, actually, he brings them back, and Maria makes him let them go, um, and it works, which is astounding. So, right, he kind of. It, it's interesting though because he is making fun of this group of people that uh, have sort of happening at the time, but also then happening later. This return to the peasant, like you know, idealizing the peasant commune, and you know, it's it's just. He's breaking down his own ideal, which he also is kind of interested in throughout his own life. Right. But, you know, is it really any better than the aristocrats? Is it any better at governing or is it really equal? No. Does it mean you have to bind them and beat them? Also, no. But hey. <laughs> in classic Tolstoy in fashion, we've got, we've got these parallels between uh, the aristocratic society, which are holding back the war effort by endless conflict between themselves and the peasant decision-making which is held back by endless conflict between themselves yeah it's, it's great it's a really good functioning society um it's really no wonder that they won the war <laughs> i think that must be how tolstoy arrived at his conclusion as he lived in russian society long enough he was like there is actually no single reason i can think of as to why we won the war <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of like as they're like parading the icon about you know the smolensk wonder working icon right and i feel like the point of tolstoy is supposed to be that religion is ridiculous but the more I read War and Peace, the more I'm like, it, maybe it worked. I don't know. It certainly <laughs> Honestly, didn't hurt them because um, nothing else helped them. <laughs> yeah. Like at this point, the only you have to be you have to argue in favor of religion because there's no way other right. than divine providence that led to them winning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. That's how I feel on the, on the on my my read through this time. I'm like, actually, it must be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Right. And speaking of divine providence uh, preventing things, this is the only time we talk about Princess Maria's looks and he doesn't, the narrator, not Tolstoy, technically, the narrator 
does not write two pages about how ugly she is. Well, it's because uh, he's filtering through Nikolai, who is sure so absolutely rock hard at the idea of saving <laughs> this aristocratic girl. That's just, I, it's just like this, you know, damsel in distress trope, and he is lapping it up. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to be respectful, but I feel like you can tell he's lapping it up. No, he um, he is. He's mad at. He's so in love with her that he's mad at himself. Right, which is that's good. Yeah, so he does. He does help her. Uh, he beats the peasants until they let, until they let her go. Then takes her to a nearby town. So as and says, "Okay, you're good to go. I'll see you in the future, maybe." And wanders away. Now Maria thinks, "Oh my gosh, I'm so in love with this man. He's so so romantic that meeting." And Nikolai's thinking that was such a romantic meeting. But oh how can I marry her? Because I've got to marry Sonia. But if I married her, she's rich. That would solve my family's problems. And I love her. He thinks. I, yeah. <laughs> I like that. This is, was a time where you could fall in love with j- just everybody you saw, because you maybe saw like five women max up until you sure. got married. So you just kind of see one randomly one day and you're like, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> that's We're the getting one. married. Yep. <laughs> We can't undo this action. Yep. I'm 15. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That is by far, whenever I tell someone about, people ask about the podcast and, you know, things I've learned, lots of things to say. The number one was anything that's written before the 20th century is terrifying because of the number of teenagers who decide they're in love and need to get married to someone forever in the first 10 minutes of seeing someone. Blame the romantics. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> As Tolstoy said, the Germans are at fault for everything. I think sure. that's what he says. Uh, yeah, that, that is what know. he conveys. Hmm. The Germans in there, two, all two scientific minds. I would be interested in, in understanding uh, the, the historical association between German, Germans and science, science and, and exactness. We don't have time. That's a much bigger topic. Um, it's a whole separate and we do know We do know someone who studies German history, so let's go and ask. We, mm-hmm. we can we can ask him. Um, so ask a German day <laughs> on Fifty Tolstoy podcast. <laughs> I don't know why I don't like that name. Um, <laughs> something about it. So from here, we a couple of things happen. Andre goes to see Kutuzov to let him know that his father died because Kutuzov cries. He's close to the man. Um, I did have a question for you. That now this point isn't the only reason I bring this this part up. It, it doesn't have that much relevance to the rest of it is just because uh Kutuzov, as it's repeatedly mentioned is reading a book uh le chevalier de du signe don't know how to pronounce that one in french uh, by madame de genlis as far as i can tell by my research that's kind of like as just a popular novel at the time but it's brought up twice and i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why nope didn't look it up was. i skimmed that's right fair. past it because this part was so freaking long it almost certainly has some significance if it's mentioned twice i'll tell you that much all right. But well, I'm going to chop, snip and chop this part out of the video so you wouldn't even know that I didn't know that. <laughs> it's it's perfect. It's seamless. Seamless. Um, so uh, Andre I just, tells... I like this part because when Katuzov asks Andre whether he wants to stay and help him and Andre says, no, I want to go to the front. I just like the... I, I don't know. He's just got such a funny response. And he it's just, just boys club. Like yeah, you shouldn't stay here because we need some we need some real men at the front, baby. <laughs> the front is where all the men go to die. It's like get on out there, Andre. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. So um, we go from here to 
uh, well, briefly, we, we also go to the cities. Soirees are happening. Here we pick up here. We're going to follow through the end of this part. And um, as, as Tolstoy tells us, at the approach of danger, there are always two voices that speak with equal power in the human soul. One very reasonably tells a man to consider the nature of the danger and means of escaping it. The other, still more reasonably, says it is too depressing and painful to think of the danger since it is not in man's power to foresee everything and avert the general course of events. And it is therefore better to disregard what is painful till it comes and to think about what is pleasant. In solitude, man generally listens to the first voice, but in society, the second. So it was now with the inhabitants of Moscow. It's just too, mu- it's just too much. Yeah. It's just too mu- like It's like too much Tolstoy theoretical. It's, but it's, it is, it's funny because it leads into just yeah. now as Moscow is on the verge of being marched on, uh, swar- people are having celebrations before they flee the city. <laughs> right, right. Including um, our, our good friend, Julie Trebetskoy, um, which sure. Pierre happens, which is where we join Pierre. And at this point, a reminder, he, after having, raising some principled objections, um, to having to just mindlessly raise troops for the emperor he has a pure he's got a doctor um dr strange love moment as soon as the emperor walks in says you have old mind fuhrer i can walk and offers up you know as many troops as uh as he can handle and so now he's, he's got these regiments he's raging inside i'm gonna go join them for the battle i'm gonna go with no military experience lead them in this battle which will end up being the most important of the war although of course he does not it's know not really that. leading them it's kind of just like he's just there, there. He's kind of an entertainment for them. He is Forrest Gumping his way through this <laughs> entire part of the book. Yeah. Uh, which, so he goes, he goes, goes out to the field in his carriage, shocked by the idea that these people could die. We, we lean in more. I'm not going to go too much into it, but Tolstoy goes into more of his theoreticals about how war happens and how we can't really understand and how everyone, people think this battle was intentional and there was a masterful stroke. But really, based on his studies, it was an accident. You know, the Russians clearly were not prepared to be uh, the Russian army, I should say. It was, it's made up of much many more people than Russians, as, as Tolstoy makes clear. Our, were not meant, did not mean to fight where they were meaning to fight. They did not mean to fight on their left, left flank. They were not even fighting where they intended to fight because they were out of their fortifications. The French army didn't realize they were fighting the left flank. You know, no one really knew what was going on. And it was just a complete accident that things happened the way they did. It's just a million different things happening that landed the course of events as they were which was outside of everyone's control uh except for pierre who's just wandering around the battlefield he he, he decides i'm gonna go see what's going on in this fight and so the you know the day the day of comes we follow napoleon moore the battle begins pierre decides i'm gonna go see what's going on and he's literally wandering about in the battlefield completely hapless as people are dying around him his horse is shot and he doesn't even realize it until someone points <laughs> it out to him it's that he's just like looking around, smiling, not even realizing that he almost crosses in the French line several times. <laughs> um, and then eventually someone's like, get out of the way. And he's like, well, let's go up to this little knoll over here, not realizing that he's just entered the most important point of the battle. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like literally is sitting there on the fortifications as he's watching the most important fight of the battle between the French and the, and the Russian armies happening the cannoneers people dying around him at one point when the french rush the fortification he gets into a fight and he doesn't even think he's winning the, neither neither him nor the frenchman know who's winning they both think they've lost um it's that he, that he just wanders through that's just what he just wanders through until the the end of the battle comes and now it's not a, it's it's a very it's a very pure victory for the french because what happens is the french destroy the russian army like they ob- obliterate it 
But as Tolstoy mentions, it's really the morale that breaks there because even though the Russian army loses, like I think it's some number of tens of thousands of, of men, um, the the belief in kind of invincibility is broken, which has you know cascading effects later on. It really, it, like this whole part in a hundred and fifty or sixty pages is it's just a lot. What is the word I'm looking for? Now, so this whole part in like 150, 160 pages is Tolstoy just trying to describe to you how momentum works. It's literally <laughs> all it is. That's his mysterious yeah. force. It's momentum. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, he just, he, yeah, towards the end, Andre's there. He's thinking dark thoughts. He's like, why we, why should we care about warfare? Um, he's Andre is absolutely going through it. Andre is. <laughs> In his soul, he is living through a Vietnam, like, ex. he's like, he is a soldier in the American military who was drafted into Vietnam and has come home and is now a pro- like an anti-war protester. He's like 4th of Julying his as uh, the movie, his way through events now. Um, and in classic Andre fashion, as he's sitting there thinking about, like, how stupid the aim of wars he's also he's also also arguing against um taking prison we'll come back to that in a second he's like we should just kill everyone we come across because that's more humane than this fiction of war as a as a humane thing and but anyway i think actually he's he's right i see what he's saying he i I, i've got a whole page of notes on this because it is interesting um but he's thinking all that he goes to battle he's like i'm gonna die today and then he gets shot and he's when he's brought back to the field tense uh, momentum baby momentum um, he's thinking manifest about the sky. Manifest your reality, Andre. <laughs> Andre, <laughs> Andre believes in manifesting. Uh, so as he gets brought back, he realizes he's not alone in this operating theater. And in fact, he's there with a man being having his leg amputated, who he realizes is Anatoly. Not only does he not feel any hate for Anatoly in this moment, he feels a sense of love for him, for this connection of their history together, even if that connection of history was the breakup of his you know, marriage to be. And uh, Napoleon doesn't take his, his, uh, um, his, his loss lying down. Well, he does. He's just mad about it. And then we jump forward to when he's, uh, you know, sent off to the island of St. Helena and is justifying it in later years. And then Tolstoy comes back in to say, it wasn't because of any individual person. It was just, I mean, any, anyone who thought they had control were basically just horses on treadmills. And that's what happened at the Battle of Borodino. It changed the course of the war. So this part dragged. This was a lot. Very important. We're kind of going through a lot of points, which Tolstoy has been setting up for a long time. So you're not going to be surprised. By anything we have to say for the most part it is it makes sense it's that he's talking about the the world historical hands of the clock was napoleon like in jail in the island or was he just like vibing if i recall correctly he was just like exiled there okay so when i, I you know maybe this is my ignorance i kind of just thought it was just like you know basically a rock i, I didn't realize no, like it's like a real it's a it's a it's a community like are you kidding there's like stuff like yeah what do I have to do to get exiled there is what I'm wondering. <laughs> well, I guess it conquer half of Europe and have your empire fall apart. Oh, dude, that sounds like so much work, though. <laughs> Wouldn't it be the life? I mean, you're just imagine you're Alexander the Great. You don't worry about ruling. That shit's for bureaucrats. You don't care about that. Every day you go out and you fight. Yeah. For breakfast, you just drink wine. You're drunk yes. all the time. <laughs> if I lose, I get to go on an island vacation. <laughs> you or get murdered That's, horribly one or the other it's like it's a real yeah right it's real like random between 
either this monarch who lost uh, just got sent to the island vacation or this monarch who got lost died in the most horrifying way imaginable. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd want to take that risk. <laughs> high risk, Maybe. high reward. <laughs> yeah. You could be you could be Napoleon or you could be that um I forget the the guy who pretended to be a descendant of the Rurik dynasty in the yes. age of like in the 17th century the age of pretenders before the Romanovs came to power in Russia and mm-hmm. when they found out they killed this guy I they killed him burned his body maybe burned him alive I don't remember what then took his ashes and fired it out of a cannon in the direction <laughs> of Poland or wherever he was from <laughs> Okay all I'm saying is that's actually kind of hardcore <laughs> that's i yeah at that point just desecrating their body so complete i'm not even sure that's i mean that is literally desecration but i don't even know that that's like that's kind of metal right like you die in a foreign country and they're like all right we're gonna fire you out of a cannon towards where your homeland is obviously it's meant to be a sign of disrespect but it's kind of cool i guess there's a whole bunch okay i'm seeing some meme culture around false dimitri so that's the good. Fal- yes that's right if you, want to, if you want to know more look at the false dimitri is a whole series of <laughs> pretenders to the throne Ah, that's awesome. Anyways, I guess we should talk about our book. I also like that they call it the Age of Troubles too. They, they, there's such good names there. The Age of Troubles and the like, False Dimitris. Come on, those are good names. It's good. And then it's you good. get the it's it's all, this is a side side point. It's kind of funny, not funny. It's just interesting that in the entire history of like Imperial Russia, there are only two dynasties technically. It's just the Rurik Dynasty and the Romanovs, which is yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of I mean a lot of European history is just the Habsburgs, but so little movement. <laughs> In terms of control. Yeah. Other than the false Dimitris. You got your peasants, you got your grain. What more do you need? You beat <laughs> Napoleon. That'll keep you fueled for a couple hundred years. There you go. Uh, so this part, first of all, big up. Uh, congratulations to Maria for mm-hmm. once. I know that we're, it's because the narrator is through Nikolai's point of view. One congratulation, singular. Congratulations for not having Tolstoy go on his, uh, his famous radio show, Hottie or Naughty. And, uh, <laughs> And I do like you know that for... the I, I like the gossip about her though, where right. people are talking about how war is making everybody crazy, and someone remarks like, "Oh, even I guess even Maria is getting married off." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can once you step outside Nicola's point of view, Tolstoy is like, "I just let you know, she's." <laughs> I just I, I still again, hate it's her. your friendly narrator Tolstoy reminding you that um, yeah, I'll go. Just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Lipsy, uh, the Lev Tolstoy radio show where we rate whether or not these characters are hot or not. Now remember, Napoleon, he thinks he's a hottie, but he's actually a naughty. But that's not the point of this show. The point of this show is to talk about Maria, who thinks she's a hottie, mm-hmm. just like Napoleon. But not only is she just a naughty, she's in fact so ugly that I'm glad that we're a radio format so you can't even see her. And that is that's what my point of view basically. is. Tipsy Tolstoy, or Lev Tolstoy, not Cameron Lalana. Tolstoy again, his point of view. <laughs> That's the end of the radio Basically. show. <laughs> Basically. He does her pretty dirty. That's it. He except yeah. yeah um that's all I gotta say about it. I I mean I found the 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 politicking of the of the peasants interesting. Sure. That's it. I mean, just having 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 Discord instead of having them as one singular mass, although their 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 Discord is two singular masses fighting each other for their beliefs. Um but I don't know. Salt of the earth. Cheers to the peasants. That's why I got my Bedello. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes to Tolstoy's point on one, how there's just such a sort of chasm between the aristocrats and peasants that even though Princess Maria is like, please take the grain so you don't starve, they won't take it. 
they won't do anything. And it goes to this idea that he's pushing back against about reform, I think, in that even the best and most well-meaning reforms, they are not going to be successful if you don't understand the particulars of whatever sort of situation you are implementing, which is so this is basically a small scale version of why theory doesn't work right, uh, applied yeah. to peasants. It's kind of like um, it reminds me of perhaps one of the most misunderstood books, uh, misunderstood, but in form of title uh, in American history, The Ugly American. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever read that. Yeah. About the American who's ugly. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. see, the, the ugly American now, the term like talking about ugly Americans abroad is about Americans who act like shitty abroad. However, right. in the context of the ugly American, the ugly American is the, like you've got a bunch of it's about, you know, U.S. foreign policy in the 1960s and 70s. And I've got all these beautiful people going abroad as the Foreign Service office and the book's like, yeah, they're doing fuck all. They're doing nothing good. They're actually only hurting our reputation. And the hero of the book is the is a very ugly American and his very ugly wife. Because instead of going abroad at the Foreign Service to like do American aims, they just like go and move in with like some people are like, hey, what's the problem? What, what problems do you have? And the, the ugly American is an engineer who works with like local people to address specific problems. And it's like, oh, well, this is an issue you're having. Let me use my technical know-how and your knowledge of the land you live in to find solutions that make sense to you and you work with. And so I don't know why the ugly American now means negative thing, because the ugly American is the only good American in the book. Every All the beautiful Americans are, in fact, the stupid ones. But anyway, in a, in a small scale sense. Yeah, take that. <laughs> take that, the beautiful people. You can't be pretty and good. Even the ugly American says so. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in a small scale sense, Tolstoy, the ugly American is just like Constantine Levin. <laughs> well, not really, but. No, not really at all. The Ugly American is like the ideal form of Constantine Levin by Constantine right. Levin's own understanding of life. Anywho. Anywho. Is there anything? I kind of want to jump to talking about war. Well, considering this was mostly war, I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. So for the most part, not too much to say, broadly. I mean, it's exactly what we've been touching on. It's not an individual. Most of this part is about how little control commanders actually have. You know, there's right. an entire chapter about how Napoleon's giving constant orders, which he, the, the narrator notes, either are impossible to carry out or have already been carried out just by necessity, which is something that you see on the French side, on the Russian side. All kinds of commanders are just reacting to things around them, and everything in the war is actually happening despite what they say. It's happening, and they think they give it form, when in fact, it would have happened anyway. That's the big. Is there? I, I, that's some stuff I want to talk, on, talk about with Andre, but that's later on. So I don't want to skip over anything before that. If you wanted to, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Andre personally. Let's talk about Andre because I think that's. I mean, for a lot of this part, a, a lot of it is Maria's escape. Not too much to say about that. Pierre Forrest Gumping his way through the story. Sure, the world historical hand. Cool. I think Andre is the only one who we really delve into too much of his mental state for this part. I'm, the problem with the women, and as I'm reading this again, is I'm really actually having trouble discerning whether they can or cannot fit the manic pixie dream girl trope. Manic pixie who star girl. Right, right, right. My apologies. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> like they they basically do, and so yeah, I can I can definitely see that as a as a legitimate criticism as I'm as I'm moving through. Sorry, not to take us away from Andre. I was just, I have the tab open on my screen and I'm just contemplating. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just uh, like most of the women in this part, they're, I think, 
not that all women are portrayed negatively in War and Peace. They are not. However, they're really mostly used. It's it's a very instrumental. Like women are very instrumental. They are really operatives right. of some point he's trying to make. Unlike a lot of the men who get interiority. Yeah, it has nothing to do with whether they're portrayed like good or bad at all. Yeah, but yeah, Maria is basically just there as a trope in this part. I mean, maybe maybe there's some other better reading of this that I'm missing, but if you know of it, let us know because that's. I was having a snooze fest. I was like, boo. <laughs> yeah. And now Nikolai is going to leave Sonia the cat. So. Sonia the cat. Sonia the cat is cousin. Um. <laughs> Sonia the old cousin cat. <laughs> the coolest cousin cat he knows. It's so difficult. Do I marry this like rich woman or do I marry my cousin? I don't know. My mother would love for me to marry someone who I'm not related to and also solves all our financial problems. Oh, I don't think it's the relationship that bothers her. I think it's the money. Yeah. <laughs> if it was a rich cousin cat, that would be okay. Like an Aristocat? An Aristocat. <laughs> Aristocats. Ladies and gentlemen, the Aristocats. Um, right. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Andre. Okay. So Andre... Yep. Right. Do you want to start off... No, 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 go ahead. I was just trying to stop talking about Aristocats and then let it get going. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So Andre, I mean, we made a joke earlier that he's basically like a Vietnam, like a veteran who protesting the Vietnam War. Essentially, that is what he's doing. Where he, he's at this point, he's thinking about, um, we try to treat warfare as this kind hearted thing that's glorious and honorable but it's all rubbish you know i saw I, he says quote i saw chivalry and flags of truce in 1805 they humbugged us and we humbugged them they plunder other people's houses issue false paper money and worst of all they kill my children and my father and then talk of rules of war and magnanimity to foes take are no prisoners reading, but kill and be killed he was come this far are you reading the most british translation in the world i this part i was when i was at work i was reading the mod translation oh my I'm, I'm going between translations. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, yeah, I can hear it. I'm like, what? Did you get abducted? Are we in a Doctor <laughs> Who episode? Um, yeah, I'm going between trends. I'm going between the my my physical book and when I'm at work, I read the mod translation because that's what's on Gutenberg.com. Project Gutenberg. That's so funny. It kind of Britishisms kind of bother me. Yeah. No. I yeah. I know. And <laughs> yeah. Well. Right. You know why. <laughs> Because they're British and Matt hates the British. Right, because right because they're British. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of accuracy of translation, just personal biases. <laughs> right, personal personal bias, yep. Yeah. It just sounds like so off when you're reading something that you know is supposed to be Russian and then they Yeah. You, it just like I get like a knee-jerk reaction when I hear it. <laughs> Where I'm like, I know that that's like there's no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you you are right. You're right to react that way. When I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> so andre at this point he is he, he's saying why do we pretend like war is this nice cool thing where there are rules and we take prisoners and that's nice so like as if there are rules they burn down villages and they kill people and they they well this it's a real it's a real um he, he kind of loses scene towards the end because it starts off with like burning villages and killing people and like yeah and they pretended and they gave, handed out and, and they committed fraud they handed out false banknotes which is like not the not it doesn't feel equal but still i mean he's coming to this that that's how he's trying to view things doesn't it kind of seem like you could have ruined a whole country though like a couple hundred years ago just by printing fake banknotes oh yeah they killed they tortured they raped and worst of all they affected our economy (laughs) and worst of all they brought monopoly money (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, I mean, he says, like, what, what is, the aim of war is murder. The, weth- the methods of war are spying, treachery, and their encouragement, the ruin of a country's inhabitants, robbing them or stealing the provision of the army, and fraud and falsehood termed military craft. The habits of the military class, the absence of freedom, that is, disciplines, idleness, ignorance, cruelty, debauchery, and drunkenness. And in spite of this, that is, the highest class, respected by everyone. And the kings, except the Chinese, wear military uniforms, and he who kills the most people he receives the highest rewards. Uh, I don't know why the except the Chinese bit makes me like, know, it's I, so when funny. When I was reading that, <laughs> I was like, wow. Hey, he's going for historical accuracy, I guess, just based on the few nations that he knows. <laughs> I'm sure there are others, but okay, whatever. Totally not the point. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's uh, overall. Uh, the, well, I mean, I, 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 I laughed at that because it just felt so... It felt like how we talk of like, yeah, and here's this thing. Well, now I think about it, actually, well, here are some examples, like exceptions to that. Like m- European monarchies tend to wear military dress, but uh, well, the Chinese monarchy actually doesn't wear military dress, but that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, but we're podcasters. We're supposed to be useless. This is Tolstoy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I mean, that's still like that is, I don't know, change some of the language and still something you could probably hear today. <laughs> Sure, sure. I mean, so not the language, change some like the exact words, but the the basic idea, um, which is why we say he's it's a Vietnam War protester. Basically, he's just like, why are we pretending? Why are we pretending we have to be merciful because we're really not being? It's just a fiction we all wear, and it's infiltrated our society to that degree. Yeah, I mean, he's talking about how basically the performance of war and the sort of institution that arises around it. That if you undid it there would be no war because people don't want to kill each other. Like people kill each other only out of response to other sort of external stimuli. It's not really that they want to do this to each other. Like, yeah, right. Deep down, I think everybody understands that this is wrong. And so it's only these sort of things that are supporting the war that are, you know, supporting it. (laughs) It's not, it's not that deep. It is sort of a simple point, but it is kind of true. It kind of points to his sort of nonviolent resistance that he starts to develop. Well, he's already developing, but he's sort of takes it up kind of later. And actually, I swear I just heard like Zizek make the same point like yeah. not that long ago. Not about war, but about bosses. <laughs> how, bas- how basically like the quickest way to sort of overthrow capitalism or make people understand that uh, their sort of working relations are wrong is to force your boss to act like a boss, sure. not to be enamored with a company happy hour and uh, different perks, right? The sort sure. of relations that have kind of developed now where you can be friends with your boss, uh, which is kind of a weird thing, uh, but kind of recognizing those relations for what they are is essentially what Tolstoy is saying Like with war is to recognize it for what it really is as you peel back the layers that sort of surround it and uphold it, which I think is pretty provocative. It's a salient point. Yeah. Um, I think book <clears throat> overall, this part is, if you read All Quiet on the Western Front, you thought, I like this point, but I want to be lectured at way more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get better from here on out, though, is the problem. Yeah. I remember my first read through, I think it was about this part where I was like, Phew, we are in for it, boys. <laughs> <laughs> you're too deep to stop yeah but because you're like oh i'm like basically almost done but what you don't realize is you still have basically 
two other novel length parts to go <laughs> yeah i i firmly believe that tolstoy the more he makes his points the more he gets like good at, at making them subtly which is why i think anna karenina is probably the you think it gets more subtle as it goes on you are no in, no not sorry wrong. not in one book i think as he as he comes back in different works to the same point he okay. makes them more subtle if he's already okay. made them so overtly previously which is why why Anna sure. Karenina is shorter and like conveys a lot, a lot of similar points because he's conveying them in like literary senses rather than like in War and Peace, just sitting you down and be like, "All right, so here's what I'm trying to say over 1,200 pages." <laughs> yeah, here's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to start each of my four books with me telling you what I'm trying to say, and then I'll illustrate those points a few times for you throughout each of the books, and then in each epilogue, I'll remind you what I was trying to say. You get what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out here to say like, oh, Anna Karenina is the better of the two, but I think Anna Karenina tackles some of the same points, and you can see the way that he takes these overt points and makes them more subtle, week by just yeah. doing it instead of doing it and then saying, hey, here's what I'm doing right here. <laughs> Let me draw your attention to what I have my point. Well, I mean, it's also different. I mean, Anna Karenina is not an epic either. Sure. Yeah. There, there are no, there are, there are. You're right. There are differences, but um, I think. The, when you see the same points being made, you can kind of see his, at least what I think, how he, how he, how he, why like it's important to read him not only to understand his voice as we talked about, Tolstoy's voice as a narrator overlaps and also like it jumps in and out of characters. Sometimes a character is the voice of the narrator and sometimes they are the voice that the narrator is making fun of. And sure. so it's necessary to read his shorter works to understand his voice as a narrator to understand his points, but also the more you read, the more you'll understand. Like you'll see in one work where he makes a point really obviously and then successive works where he tries to remake that point in a way that feels like he's more comfortable with it and doesn't feel the need to tell you this is the point i'm making so you think so you yeah, <laughs> yeah but um that's i don't know that's all i had to say about this part for the most uh i mean there or... is more to say but i think we're out of time we are out of time i think corporate shutting down the lights i can see uh, yeah, actually, I can hear them like in the distance, the breakers being pulled. They heard my comment about bosses and they're like, get out. <laughs> yeah, the, the lawyers are on the phone. <laughs> so uh, at this point, Matt, I got to ask you. Yep. As we come to the end of this episode, what is your zinger of the week? My zinger of the week, I'm, I think I'm going to give to Napoleon talking about medicine. Sure. I think it's funny that Tolstoy really insists on putting this in everywhere he can. It's funny to me. <laughs> yeah. And I think he's, I think most of his points are well taken, except the medicine one. Thanks, Tolstoy hates the military, doctors, historians, and chess players. We know that for sure. It's like, I think that, of course, modern medicine does leave a lot to be desired for many people. However, if you were to take your chances in Tolstoy time or now time, I would so rather take my chances in right now time. Are you sure you don't want to be prescribed a visit to the sea to treat your cancer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do not want to have to watch these sort of uh, military doctors operating. I, I don't want that. That's fair. Anyways, before we kind of wrap it on up here, Cameron, I got I to gotta ask on a, a scale from one to Yeltsin, hmm. how drunk are you on your, your peasant beer? Um, it, now... I'll balance it up because this is 32 ounces of beer. However, Modelo is not real beer. It's right. uh, barely alcoholic. So I'm I'm a, I'm in a three or four. Yeah, it's kind of like um, alcoholic water. It is just like one step up from real kvass, really, <laughs> in terms of how alcoholic it is. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, did you ever watch, sorry, as a side point, did you ever watch uh, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern or Andrew Zimmerman? I don't remember. Did not. Okay. There's one episode, which I remember fondly because uh, when I was a child, whenever I went on a family trip, I would get $4 to buy two episodes. At that time, uh, TV shows on Apple, on iTunes were $2 each. So I got to buy two TV shows and I watched that on the trip. Very smart move on my parents' part. Yeah, honestly. And so every trip I would get, I would get two more. I would get, uh, sorry, I, I, got, I got an allowance for music and for movie or TV shows. So every okay. time I went, I got two more, uh, two, two more Nickelback songs. <laughs> yes. Two, <laughs> yes. Two more Nickelback yeah. songs and two more Bizarre Foods episodes. And the one yeah. I was obsessed with was the one where he goes to St. Petersburg. And something that okay. I've thought about many times since is there's a part and. I need to rewatch this. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But he talks about like, yeah, this is this is a beer they sell on the street. And he's for like really talking about like, yeah, even children drink this beer here as kind of like a mm-hmm. man, is it doesn't Russia drink so much? Like it doesn't the Slavic world drink so much beer? It took me a while to realize that, that was just kvass, which yeah, is technically alcoholic. However, practically not yeah. really. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's still now you don't need to drink kvass, but like, you know, better even as a child to drink a little bit of mildly alcoholic boss right. than to drink a lot of the water. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I think that that's good though. Like I'm kind of annoyed when you buy non-alcoholic beer here, you still get ID'd mm-hmm. because it has <laughs> just trace amounts of alcohol. Sure. Honestly, if you're a teenager and you're, you're chasing that buzz, if you're going to pound, I, I looked it up cause I was like, how much would you, it was like ridiculous. It was like 80 non-alcoholic, like, yeah the equivalent of one beer would be i'm not even sure you really could drink that much right like physically you know good on you yeah and even if you did i'm pretty convinced like the water content of the non-alcoholic beer would dilute the buzz yeah i think so i i got id'd buying kombucha once well it's got alcohol in it doesn't it it does it's like 0.05 percent uh alcohol so yeah i was just surprised they actually cared that much yeah, it just makes me think like, wow, I hope I brought my ID with me wherever I was going. So I didn't <laughs> I think I was getting like real alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, Matt, I know, I know it's very obvious, but what are we reading next week? Next week, we are going to be finishing book three of War and Peace. That's part three. I think that's all there is in this book. And then we are out. We are done with the book. Done with Tipsy right. Tolstoy podcast. <laughs> then it's over forever. Oh, we still have book four in the epilogues? Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. Damn it. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Well, we'll I think we'll make it through somehow. Hopefully. Um, now well, now everyone's been set up. Now that now they now they get to some of them take their falls. So I, I can only assume by some people feeling happy that they're soon going to have a fall. <laughs> it's gonna be great. We're winding up for it, baby. <laughs> And before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Jacob, Elizabeth, Jay, Shannon, Haley, Blake, Amanda, Emily, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Drew, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Lucy, Cole, Allison, Brandon, 
Oh boy, I was trying to do that all in one breath. Not doable. Uh, Arini, Larkin, Alex, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Al, oh, uh, Alex. Uh, sorry, Alex, you already got a shout out. Emily, I mean, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, and Alexandra, Alexandra, uh, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running at the rate we currently do, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. And the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.